Sonic Statesman.com. Hi, Rich. How are you? Good. I'm afraid you've got to share the line with three miserable unsun unsun Brits who are just... I feel like that. You know that Ray Bradbury novel? <laughs> where they're looking for the sun domes on Mars and they just kind of, they're walking for days and days and days and it rains and rains and they start to get bleached out and they get to the last sun dome and it's all smashed up and they're just, oh, I can't take any more. It's kind of like that in England at the moment. It has rained for five weeks, I reckon. Almost every day there's been a couple of sort of two or three hour stints of, of sunlight, but basically it's rained the whole time. And it's, you know, it's not actually funny anymore. It's now kind of getting to the point of, right, where are we going to move to? You know, it really is. <laughs> so you mean it's rained since I left? Yeah, yeah. Ba- basically. And and the day and the, the weekend you were there, it was unusual in that it hadn't rained. Well, um, this Sunday, the night of the performance at Creamfields, it is predicted to possibly rain. Well, the weather, uh, the weather does look better than um, than I thought. You know what? The, we- the weather's actually better than the Amazon rainforest because I went to the um, London Aquarium at the weekend and as i walked through i noticed that it said in england we get 70 to 80 thousand inches of rain a year is that right no it's not thousand, thousand. Rain. No. 70 to 80 probably inches yeah yeah oh right ma- and in the rainforest they get between 800 and 1000 inches of rain yeah but <laughs> i don't live in the rainforest i wouldn't live in the rainforest because of the rain I live. I mean, yeah. I remember looking at it and thinking, "Wow, I thought it rained a lot here, but that's at least a hundred times more." Yeah, but rain. the thing is, it only rains for like an hour a day. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It rains for an hour a day. It absolutely chucks it down because it's tropical, <laughs> and it's blue sky. Yeah, and the rest of the time, it's happy days, lying around. Reach out. I'll just help myself to that pineapple. You know. <laughs> there are pineapple, uh, pineapple in the rainforest. Well, okay, something like that. But <laughs> um, guava. You guys will undoubtedly be thrilled to know that the weather here has been absolutely beautiful and that right now it's about 63 degrees Fahrenheit, sunny, no humidity, and a nice cool breeze. So, we're, um, we're coming over. I'm hanging out. Come on. <laughs> I'll serve lunch. <laughs> you know, or, if in I, ca- or in your case, dinner. If I could, I would. So, well, um, let's say hello to everybody. We were just discussing the weather there. I thought I'd cut that in because basically it's been so dreadful. But I'm joined by uh, Mr. Rich Hilton there, who is um, in Connecticut, which I usually say sunny Connecticut, and I'm right because it is sunny, so we're very envious of him. How are you doing, Rich? I'm basking. <laughs> okay. Don't push it. I've got the hang-up <laughs> button. <laughs> anyway, Rich Hilton can be found at myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. If you're so that inclined, you can see pictures of him basking, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, also, Mark Tinley, um, myspace.com forward slash Mark Tinley. Mark, how are you? I'm feeling a bit frazzled and mental. Ah, why is that then? Um, I've decided to do a detox diet thing, which involves no wheat, no dairy, and no sugar. <laughs> and right. I think I'm, I must be addicted to sugar because I'm feeling a bit... Like, oh my god, I want to eat this table. Really? <laughs> Does it look like it's a chocolate coated table? But you Indeed. don't be doing drink or anything. So what do you have uh, to detox well, no, from? So it's probably easier for me. I'm I'm doing something called the Cassiel diet and, and in two weeks time I should be thinner and more healthy, basically. Okay. And uh no, I don't drink tea or coffee. Only decaffeinated, so I won't have to detox from caffeine, I guess. But just decaffeinated from I'm sugar. Pretty much addicted to wheat and sugar, and I just want to eat like brown sugar sandwiches at the moment. All this <laughs> table. I mean, I don't know what what I want to eat. I've just got that. I've got to eat you know, something. Like you stop doing something, you get that horrible craving feeling. Mm. I feel like I've given up smoking, except I did that like ten years ago. Well, same feeling. My Different thoughts are with you. So if I go, like, slightly off in this podcast, you'll know why. You'll just if be sort of tripping. the phone or something. <laughs> you're just, just going to start hallucinating. <laughs> well, Mark, I wish you luck in your diet. Uh, Dave Spears, g4software.com. You're not dieting, are you? No, I'm in shock. God, the thought of doing without caffeine. 
I, I don't know. I, I gave up caffeine a couple of years ago. Uh, well, no, actually probably much longer than a couple of years ago. And I really shocked myself at how addicted I was to it because I, I was feeling so ill one day and nauseous. I had to go to the dentist and I just phoned them up and said, there's no way I'm coming to the dentist because I feel sick and I don't know what's wrong with me. I've got a terrible headache. I had a cup of tea and I was fine. I thought, oops. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means I'm, and then I, so I went, I, I just basically stopped drinking tea and I had the three days of the worst, most bad tempered, or I felt awful. I was like real cold turkey and I didn't drink that. I maybe drank four cups of tea a day, you know, not a huge amount. At the moment I'm back to about two. I have to have one in the morning because um, I sort of kickstart, but it's amazing how quickly you can get addicted to that sort of thing. Oh. Terrifying. In fact. Um, so I think that's all of us. Sonic talk number 95. Um, and, Wednesday, the 20th of August, recording, uh, going live on the 21st. We missed last week. I'd just like to apologise to our regular listeners. Um, it just didn't work out, basically. There are lots of people on holiday. Um, I got a phone call in the morning from um, my mum's house, who she rents a room to a student, and the roof was leaking, because guess what? It was raining. And uh, there was some plumbing leaking as well, and I just thought, there's just no way I'm going to fit this all in. So I just had to put... I took the executive decision and said, we'll have to pull it this week. So I hope nobody was um, withdrawing from that too much. Did you introduce Dave? Or have I short-circuited and missed that? I did introduce you, Dave, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, thank God for that. No. Oh, yeah, you have. You Mark, you're already you're already out there. How long have you been doing this diet for? Uh, well, I got up at six o'clock this morning. That's part of it. <laughs> That's it. So one day, not even a full day yet. Yeah, since six o'clock. <laughs> oh, no. Sugar plum fairies dancing before him. Oh, no, lordy, lordy. First of all, I'd just like to say, how good is the UK at the Olympics, eh? Look, all those gold medals. It makes you proud. We're having a bit of an identity crisis because Eng- England's not very good at being good at stuff. You know, we're not very, we don't understand how to sort of be winners to that degree. And we seem to have excelled ourselves a little more. And it's kind of now we're all a bit embarrassed. But I definitely feel a sense of national pride. I'm sure everybody's doing very well as well. But we've sort of done much better than we probably deserve to. But anyway, congratulations to everybody out there. I'm sure we haven't got any listeners who are involved in the olympics but what the hell and after my last after last week's uh, or last episode's attempt at making it a sort of jolly olympic episode that i'm not i'm gonna say no more well i'll say something michael phelps oh dude what dude yeah yeah but i'll say something else without michael phelps what would your medal count be oh i don't know but it's <laughs> i think it's exciting to watch it is amazing excel, he, he excel is so much he is incredible isn't he i think that's the other thing that we figured out we figured out that basically if you just put loads of people in for the sports where they can enter for multiple events, they can get lots of gold medals. Whereas if you're doing something like, um, I don't know, high jump, you can't really do anything else. So you've only got one shot at one medal. Whereas if you're kind of multidisciplined runner or multidisciplined swimmer or multidisciplined cyclist, you could come away with, you know, five or six. Or was it Chris Hoy's got six or seven or something? You know, pretty good because pretty good stuff. Well, ba- back to the subject of nutrition, they've been featuring here in the media quite a bit his 12,000 calorie a day diet that he eats Bloody hell. hey mark how does that make you feel jealous but it's loaded with sugars and wheat by the way <laughs> yeah i can imagine it. <laughs> oh don't don't be so cruel wasn't that just his breakfast what? uh it's four thousand per meal wow. or maybe three thousand per meal times four i don't recall it's hard to he eats so much it's hard to separate one meal from the next he must have to eat all the time like a sort of like a cow or something yeah, just continual grazing Except for those five hours a day he's swimming. I'd be interested to know what the long-term effects of that are, what he's going to be like when he's like 50 or whatever. He'll probably be extremely fit and probably extremely wealthy. Well, that'll happen within a month. Because I think swimming, the thing about swimming, we are complete, we haven't even touched on music technology at all. The thing about swimming is it's a low impact, isn't it? It doesn't screw you up like running. You know, you can, you can do a lot of it and it doesn't wear you out as quickly as other sports. Oh, I don't know about the wearing out part, but because it, it uses such a large percentage of your body in the execution. Oh, yeah, yeah, but there's no there's no impact. You know what I mean? It's kind of it's it evenly right. distributed rather than kind right. of bang 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 on your knees or whatever. But they say the single most uh, intensive sport in the entire Olympic competition is water polo. Okay, haven't been watching that one. There's horses have got to be able to swim really well. So yeah. hard to dry off those horses after the game. <laughs> right, I'm going to have to sort of yank this back into a sort of um, into the groove. It was my own fault for going down the Olympics route and gloating about the number of medals. But there we go. 
So um, this week, um, we got two from Aaron Isgar, who is a chap called Sonatera, who's a regular commenter on uh, the podcast, and he's got a couple of points. I, I don't know if you got to have a look at them. Uh, the first one was uh, to do with ergonomics, and he was basically saying, hearing about um, Dave's bout of labyrinthitis, which I assume is any, any better, Dave? Uh, not really. It comes and goes. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but this is kind of related, I suppose. Um, he was reminded of the fact that in addition to the usual problems with sitting and staring at a screen too long, people involved in audio have to be extra careful with their hearing. Do we have any thoughts about maintaining physical well-being? And he would be interested in hearing them. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess my first thing would be say, don't listen too loud, too long, and just take regular breaks. I mean, that's kind of sensible stuff, though, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting thing that's come to light um, reasonably recently in that, um, you know, call centre workers are ending up with this thing called acoustic shock syndrome. Uh-huh. And there's an awful lot of lawsuits that are taking place over this. And it's things like, you know, people get kind of fed up with uh, being bothered at night. So they do things like blow whistles down phones and stuff like that. But what they're saying is it's certain frequencies. So instead of limiting the volume, what they should do is dip certain frequencies. Well, there's not much of a frequency range within the phone I suppose. So, yeah, it's that sort of whistle, isn't it? That's going to be the... Somebody whistles down the phone, that's going to really max you out. It's like having a shot of feedback, isn't it? Yeah. One or two K blat. I wonder whether that's contributed to my situation because I did a particularly intensive bout of audio editing on phones with some very gnarly waveforms. And uh, it was it was pretty stressful, and it was very long, and I just decided to kind of chomp my way through it. Mm. And actually, it's those frequencies that kind of set me off now. So, oh. yeah, be careful. Be careful. And also, you're a drummer, aren't you? And my understanding is that those short, sharp, very loud noises are, are more dangerous for your hearing than sustained loud noise. So if you're listening to something that's at a constant 100 dB, like, I don't know, maybe a guitar, which doesn't have too many sharp transients, then you're better off standing in front of that than you are hitting a snare drum at sort of, I don't know, 90 dB, quieter, in other words. Right, so the tra- it's those short, sharp shocks that make the hairs lie flat in your ears. That's what I was told. Well, that's totally... I used to work as a sound engineer in a small club that was mostly stone. And uh, the I, one thing I wouldn't tolerate was people playing the drums when I was micing it up. And I used to get really cross because it was just, you know, I just say, look, if you do that, I'm not going to be able to hear you And after this and your sound will be totally screwed. And they, and I, you know, that was the one, the only thing that used to rile me is when people made too much noise when I was trying to mic them up because it's just, you know, stupid. Rich, I mean, you work in the studio long hours, presumably, regularly. What's your kind of, what's your magic? I don't monitor loudly, hardly at all. Uh, maybe for brief periods of time just to check the impact factor, but for most level adjustment and musical decision-making, I'm monitoring uh, more quietly than most people probably. And uh, when I have headphones on as a player, I typically am asking for the lowest volume of anybody in the room. Mm-hmm. And on stage with Sheik, quite often I'll wear foam earplugs if I think the volume is going to be particularly uh, unpleasant. Or if I only have monophonic monitoring. If I have stereo monitoring and it's not going to be too loud, I don't need them. Sure. I just hate being blown out on one side. Right. When I used to do front of house sound, I used to do it with earplugs. And I know that sounds daft, but what I used to do is I'd stand and set the sound up, get used to what I'd set up and how it sounded. Then when the gig was underway, I'd put earplugs in. And it's it's not a huge leap to go. And I'd use those ones with the acoustic kind of reduction in them. Yeah, yeah. So they're theoretically, like shooting they're meant ones. to be flat, but they're not at all. But so, but it's not a huge leap to go from, you know what this sounds like, you put a filter across it, in other words, the earplugs, and then you know what it sounds like with the earplugs in, and to run the whole show. And if something goes horribly wrong, you pull the earplugs out and... Have a listen. Fix it, but you, you know, the transition between the two sounds is, in my mind, it was enough that I could, I still knew what to turn up and down, and it sort of worked to mm-hmm. do that. Sure, I think, I think the point, Rich, you make about monitoring quietly, it's actually. Often when I've been working, you know, cause I, I think you you can get into a trap of turning it up to kind of add an element of excitement that's perhaps not there in the mix. And you sort of feel sometimes that you can't get that if you're listening quietly, but it's actually not the case. It's just, it does take quite a lot of discipline. 
to be right. able to do that and then and it may it forces you to listen a lot more carefully if you're running a lower monitor because you're not pounding the amps you're not pounding the drivers and you're not pounding your ears so you any address you have to be much more it may it forces you to be more analytical and sometimes um that's a bit of a scary kind of thing was <laughs> it for you know, um, some, um amateurs like myself you know what i mean it's kind of you you kind of want the buzz and go yeah that was great everything's great and then obviously it's not but well, um, i've got i've got the added benefit of mostly working by myself because quite often you're turning it up to impress somebody who's just come in with the power of what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, I recall when Mark and I were working together in, in London in 2002, uh, one of the band members uh, used to really like to play things with the volume knob turned completely to the maximum. That's um, because he's deaf. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he, maybe he is. But I used to leave, you'll recall, I used to leave the room. And if I didn't, I had Yeah, me books. too. I think you and I were probably standing out in the hall going, when is he going to stop doing this? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, typically it was some sort of demonstration for a visiting uh, uh, person, you know, record company guy or potential record company guy or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that bit. Typically to display it for somebody else other than us. Yeah, this is when you need the... um clear silicon earplugs and you can just pop them in when no one's looking and because they all expect you to go deaf with them don't they well i think i think the other thing is also with a and r and record company people you turn it up really loud and it's sort of it's a statement of this is the way we think it should be it's so loud that you cannot possibly have anything to to add you know we don't want your input kind of thing whereas if it's you listen to it quiet and analytically you're sort of saying mm, what do you think is there something that we can change maybe there's a sort of there's a territorial thing about it I mean, there's also an element of, hey, we're a rock band as well, isn't there? Yes, I suppose <laughs> there is that. Look how loud we are. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Dave, do you, how, do, how do you, I mean, before you kind of, you, you got this ear complaint, do you, were you a quiet monitoring person or how do you kind of tend to work? I never monitor particularly loudly. I mean, I think my problems stem from overexposure to certain frequencies within sure. a very short period of time. And I think that's what's kind of... That's what started this. But I think it's, re- you know, having gone through what I'm going through, um, I think it's really important for people to, A, watch the levels, B, watch the frequencies, because we're told all the time, aren't we, you know, s- sitting in front of a computer, you have to have this posture and have the screen X amount of metres away from you and all the rest of it. But actually, um, I think everyone should go and watch that film. Um, it's all gone peak tong or whatever, because most most DJs I know are, pretty much deaf from you know headphones headphones i think are the devil mm. i actually i've noticed that recently because i've been I, I think i've been monitoring when I, when I record the podcast for too loud and i've got a pair of headphones for an hour and i've been a bit deafened at the end of it so i'm monitoring much more quietly now it's because i like to hear my own voice in my ears it's a sort of confidence thing so i know whether i'm kind of too far away or whatever whereas if i can only hear my own voice ambiently i'm not sure how it is on mic so as a result, everything gets turned up probably a bit too much. I'm I'm trying that at the moment, see if I can remedy that one. So basically, don't listen too loud or too long. If you are listening loud, um, you've just got to take breaks. And, and, you know, obviously there's all the posture things and all of that kind of stuff. But sometimes, you know, you can you can really tire your ears out just by concentrating, even if it's on a, a, a min, a, you know, not very loud mix. You know, it's just, it's hard work sometimes, you know, and you really can get very tired that way. And then you get a fatigue um Mm -hmm. element and you know that at that point i think it's best just to stop and take a break you know and if you can come back tomorrow you know because if you haven't got a deadline to work so you're better off coming at it fresh in my opinion Mm -hmm. the other one is when you're angle grinding in the garden put earplugs in (laughs) yes that would be a good idea too (laughs) i've I've made myself more deaf from cutting up metal in the garden than Mm. i have from working on music I, I if i forget to put the earmuffs or earplugs on i always come away with ringing ears for like a whole day and thinking oh god i you know my ears are so important and yeah I that. the other thing to remember is if you've got a small child and you spend a lot of time carrying them at a very yes. early age tell them not to shout in your ear yes <laughs> because um, if you don't they will away from you exactly so i hope that's cleared something up uh, for erin has got um sonic talk sponsored by yamaha music production producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles accurate professional studio monitoring systems incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos the versatile motif range of music production synthesizers and the latest n-series digital mixing studios featuring the cleanest signal pump and full cubase ai4 integration 
www.yamahasim.com Sonic Talk. So the, the second topic was all about manuals, and he says it may be kind of a mundane topic, but how do you feel about the state of the ha- of hardware and software manuals in general? How important are they? Do you use them much? Are they generally well written or and useful or horrible? Do you like and use PDF manuals? Do you download manuals before buying a product? Blah 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 blah. Um, personally, when my Logic Eight upgrade arrived, I looked at the thousand pages of manuals and thought, "Hmm, nice doorstop." <laughs> so, Dave, I imagine manuals. You have more of an affinity with manuals, uh, whether it's a pleasant one or not, um, just because you must have to produce them or at least document the software that you do. I mean, what are your kind of thoughts about manuals from a developer's point of view? Uh, many. Um, I write the manuals personally right. because I grew up on a diet of Roland manuals circa mid-80s, which were truly horrible. Yep. In fact, my very first NAM, I met the guys who did the manual translation and I went, and you, so it's you who's responsible. And they did look very, very sheepish because they were utterly appalling. I like hard copy manuals. I also like PDF manuals. I wish uh, we started out by doing hard copy manuals. And then when we uh, went with M Audio, that was in order to reduce the price of the plugs. That was something that they wanted to eliminate from, you know, from a packaging perspective and cost. Uh, and for me, that's that's a a regret of mine i'd like to have physical manuals and also pdf manuals because i like sitting on the toilet and reading a manual a well-written manual <laughs> yes I, I know what you mean it's kind of it's it's a thing of your isn't it i suppose the manual i mean i remember um i remember the roller manuals uh, particularly the d110 manual because uh, when i got that it was it, it still is and was a fairly complex piece of kit that you have to program through three sets of cursors and a 16 you know 16 character two two row lcd and it's not easy but um yeah you do have to eke it out and from a user point of view what about you mark would you are you a manual reader if you have to be or you prefer to just um get stuck i in? never read manuals for anything ever i don't i just try and work it all out myself and well actually i read manuals when i get stuck then right and um So from that point of view, for me, now the fact that everything is on PDF is brilliant because it's all searchable. So if I'm doing something and I run into a problem, then I can load up the manual and type, you know, whatever I'm, if it's MIDI or something, and just type the word MIDI in and find every instance of that and find find the solution to the problem really quickly rather than having to thumb through indexes and entire manuals. I probably miss using some parts of the program that i mean people do things on logic sometimes and i go oh i didn't know it did that and i learn new things from other people occasionally but um, yeah but i mean i think that sometimes also that the the not using the manual kind of means that you find a way of doing something that seems kind of like to make sense to you and it may be a completely off the wall way of doing but i think that's quite uh, quite important I mean, it, yeah the only regret i've got from not using manuals is that i don't know key commands for things um, so there's probably, I mean, I mean, I know the index, some of them in the, well, there's the key commands page, isn't there? Yeah, really within Logic, you can kind of find out pretty quick. And most of them, you get a kind of preferences when then you just search for I a see, function. Yeah, I see some people using it and they virtually keyboard drive the whole program, whereas I tend to mouse drive the program, which is probably slower in a lot of ways. And on the Roland subject, I've got a fantastic set of books upstairs called, I think it's the the synthesizer or something it's like four books in a cardboard binding which is written in the same language as all those early manuals and a lot of it's completely incomprehensible but they're brilliant there there are i mean now you know the localization of manuals is a huge task i mean i know uh, there's a chap called malcolm doke at korg um hello malcolm if you're listening he's always we always see him at nam and he's he's quite often tasked with sort of the final documentation for the kind of us release of a specific korg product for instance um i don't know rich what about you do you kind of like to have a cupboard full of books to to refer to or are you kind of happy with the i keep them all and like Mark, I use them for reference more than for initial instruction, unless the particular task is so far removed from the things I've done before that I need it. And for those things, uh, the first of which comes to mind is Ableton. First time I saw Ableton, I was like, what is this and how does it work? And it didn't make any sense to me. thing is, it doesn't make that much sense when you read the manual either, does it? 
Well, that's the thing. I didn't read the manual, but I did do their tutorials. And I'm ah. finding these days that tutorials and the help of other people help me quite a bit more than the printed word. Though I do like having them there for reference. And like Dave, I've been known to spend a moment or two in the uh, loo with a book. Um, but uh, mostly I use them as points of reference. And I'm increasingly dependent now on videos and tutorials uh for example when pro tools released their elastic audio i must have gone through those accelerated video that accelerated video series three to five times across a period of a month or two to really wrap my head around what was going on there um rather than pull out a printed page and try to work it sure. out myself well phil jackson is 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 good i mean he's almost too good sometimes i guess because he's so slick you kind of go wait a minute what did you do there you know and he's but he's he's a brilliant brilliant demonstrator in fact i think we're we're running some ads for them now for promoting the pro tools accelerated video digital tv stuff so yeah i mean so what is it that makes a good manual i mean is there anything that kind of you really must do to make it worthwhile is it is it down to the indexing is it down to the kind of all that yeah for me yeah me too how quickly can i find out that one little piece of information that's missing from my life yeah especially Mm. if my or the person i'm working with is looking over my shoulder going, come exactly. on, Mr. Ten, come on, Mr. Ten, let's do this now. <laughs> yeah, going, right. um, oh, hang on, hang on, I've just got to find out how to... I mean, I, when I first started working with Duran Duran, I don't think I'd, I'd used sound, sound design, yeah. I'd been using that, but I hadn't really used... And I'd been using it... I'd been using Pro Tools with Logic, but I hadn't yeah. really used Pro Tools itself. So I had to sort of learn it very, very quickly. And I seem to remember the same scenario with Opcode Vision as well, because for some reason they didn't want to use Logic, so I had to learn Opcode Vision really, really quickly as well. No, I just thought of uh, uh, rather horrible. We were doing uh, one of the Apple Expo things in San Francisco, and I had normally used Atari. And, of course, for this we had to use the Mac, so I was sat on the beach on Memorial Day at a barbecue, reading the digital performer manual. And Dave Bristow, who was then uh, Emu and Yamaha, just looked at me and went, you are a sad bloke. (laughs) (laughs) You know, well, manuals are important, but they can also be incredibly misleading. So get them right. Okay. um, So I was wondering what we should do next. Um, We've got a choice. We've got uh, early stereo experiments. Or real knobs stuck on an LCD. I watched that early stereo experiments thing, and it's not in stereo. I know. <laughs> Note: the BBC does not stream in stereo. That's classic. <laughs> so that poor guy invented that in 1931, and they still haven't implemented it yet. I know it's pathetic. This is the story that uh, Alan Blumline. Um, basically, they found they found some old archive footage of Alan Blumline and a few of his. Um, uh, research chums kind of walking across a soundstage testing out his um, Blumline pair which is quite cool actually the Blumline pair is when you take two figure of eight microphones and you place them at 90 degrees to each other and then you have a kind of this very realistic soundstage apparently uh, he was born in 1903 and died in 1942 while testing a radar system apparently he's one of the most unsung kind of um, audio engineering geniuses um, of early uh, 20th century and hasn't you know people haven't really kind of appreciated what he did but he's uh, he's credited basically within the invention of stereo recording pretty much and um yes the, the there was a bbc video set showing this and it, and like i said the, the the little note in bracket says note the stereo this 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 video is not being streamed in stereo which does seem a little bit pointless <laughs> well i have a question that perhaps one of you guys or one of our listeners can answer um and it, re- and it revolves around the MS uh, mic configuration, which is not unlike Bloomline, except you're using a cardioid facing front and a figure of eight facing to the sides, mm-hmm. again at 90 degrees. And uh, typically they'll take the two, th- they'll take the figure of eight and molt it left and right and run one of them out of phase. Uh-huh. And uh, my question, and it's been my question ever since I first saw this is, why is that preferable to three cardioid microphones without the phase reversal? In other words, rather than have the figure of eight facing sideways, have a pair of cardioids back-to-back facing out sideways right underneath your front-facing cardioid microphone, and then you have phase coherency throughout the the microphone spectrum. You're not, you know, messing with the phase in order to create some sort of pseudo-stereo width or something. 
Anybody got any thoughts on that? I've never <laughs> used middle and side, but uh, isn't it? Don't you end up with a kind of three-channel scenario? So you could, you've got a lot more flexibility with the the width of the signal. Is that correct? I, I mean, well, I'm, you do by taking the figure of eight signal and molting it to a pair and throwing one out of phase and panning them. Right. I mean, that, that's the and then you bring there. and you bring the cardioid at the middle to kind of cohip right. to make it. More but cohip. I'd rather have discrete cardioid mics facing the side, so I'm not messing with the phase and getting the same kind of width and just change the pans. Isn't yeah. the idea that you can decode it to three separate tracks as well, though? So you're actually recording three channels on the two track tape machine, aren't you? Yeah, but what difference does that make if ultimately they're still just taking a stereo source? Good question. While we're on the subject was my next point. Do anyone else use any stereo recordings? What's your chosen setup? I'll go first because I used um, – when I was – one of the first things I bought when uh, when I got a record deal was a, a DAP machine and a Sony ECM-979 stereo mic, which is the big Sony one that was sort of handheld and you had a variable width, which I presumably it must be a kind of M&S setup inside and you just had a, a a dial that you could take it from sort of naught degrees to 180 and it would get really phasey and kind of totally weird but that sounded really good over a drum kit with a with another with just something on the on the snare dr- on the kick drum and that overhead just wondered you know anybody else got any kind of cool stereo setups that works for them rarely do i just use a stereo pair for the things i'm recording if i were for example doing a string quartet in a really nice hall i might be tempted to get you know, eight, ten feet away and use a stereo configuration. Typically, I go with XY or some sort of modified XY uh, configuration. But uh, I certainly use stereo miking in drum kit recording, certainly overhead. And lately, I've been going with a single stereo mic rather than a pair of cardioid mics. Um, Is that just because you got the phase built in and you know it's matched or...? I just like the image I hear. I, I make my drum kit sound m- uh, quite a bit in the overheads. And uh, I find there's a certain stereo coherence to putting the stereo mic somewhere above the head of the drum or facing towards the drums or maybe just over the drums that I like. I like the way it presents uh, in terms of the imaging and the phasing and everything. It, it seems very real to me. And how do you present that in the stereo field? Do you reverse it so that it's... Do you see what I mean? Because if you're, the drummer's hearing it as if... It's coming to them. Would he present it in the opposite, in mirror fashion? To so it oh, would, you mean in terms of the mixing, whether the hi hats on the right or the yeah, left? Yeah, yeah. It really doesn't matter to me. Uh, growing up, I always had it on the left, and in the last ten years, I've probably put it on the right quite a bit more. It really doesn't matter. The audience drummer's perspective issue doesn't really matter to me, and if it matters to anybody else in the room, I'm quite happy to accommodate them. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose that's fair enough. I don't suppose there's a rule about it. What about you, Mark? I mean, you're a you you kind of do you do much stereo recording? I mean, no, you've got that um, those kind of cool bud mics haven't you i was gonna suggest yeah i was gonna say them but i also um duran had an ams sound field microphone which was really good fun which you could play around with i think that had four capsules and then it mixed them to stereo so you could play around with the the kind of height and width of things and stuff which was quite interesting but definitely the binaural microphones i really like them but i'm can't keep my head still enough to get any sensible recordings out of them so i may have to get a pumpkin you need a dummy head everyone else seems to do with them what you want to do is um next time they're clearing out a local clothing store just sort of saw the head off a, off one of the mannequins and, and put it on a spike yeah maybe but i think that mannequins are too um uh reflective they're like tiles aren't they they're hard so I'd have to get something that was like skin on the outside of it as well, which is why I think they use pumpkins, because a pumpkin's got similar texture to human skin. God, there's it? a story in there about a serial killer um, sound engineer, isn't there, somewhere, just waiting to come out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure the Obama campaign would sell you a pair of ears to stick on that pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, what about you? You're a drummer. You must mic your own drums and everything. No, because I really enjoy getting a decent engineer in. <laughs> Let them do it. <laughs> no, I love that because actually, they, you know, nine times out of ten, there's one engineer that I generally use and he can just make things sound fantastic in, in a really short period of time compared to me. You know, I'd be mucking about for hours and hours and hours. So, yeah, no, that's my trick. Just find a really good engineer. Well, that's one way of doing it. 
that's for sure. I have mucked about with the, those Calrec um, Soundfield mics, and they they are good fun because you've got you know the vertical and horizontal stuff. Um, but that's more for kind of field recording stuff and location recordings. Oh yes, because you did quite a lot of that, didn't you? Locations mm. recording. Mm. And would that be a stereo? Recorded- would that generally be st- a stereo, or would you kind of try and get as many discrete channels as possible? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, as many discrete channels as possible. Stereo is pretty rare in those days. Mark, didn't you record lead vocals on one of those? Cowrack, yes. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I remember, I remember them. I think the yeah you know, the one vocal that stands out for me out of all the vocals I've recorded of him are that song Michael. You've got a lot to answer for. Because Warren and him had written it between them or whatever. And Warren was playing it on the acoustic guitar and Simon was singing it. And I just said, man, that sounds really good. Let's just take it, do a take now. Plugged Warren's guitar straight into the Pro Tools and plugged the Calrec in and fiddled around with it so that I kind of cancelled Warren's guitar as best I could because he was playing an acoustic guitar. And Simon just sang it. And then I remember all these various attempts to better that performance and... He was very much into fixing every single word and line at the time and went off and re-recorded that vocal several times with um, Anthony Rester and Bob St. John in Metropolis. And in the end, they used the one I did. And I was very proud of myself for that because I think I captured a moment in time more than the performance. I think the, the actual, the emotion behind it was more important and I kind of captured that. So I was... Way to go, Mark. Yeah, good for Way you. Well, stereo mics. I mean, I suppose the thing about stereo using stereo mics is we're kind of all used to the proximity effect that kind of you get from close micing things. I mean, that's sort of such a part of certainly rock and roll, isn't it? So it's kind of weird to back the mic off. It just sort of that sort of total realism is a bit disconcerting sometimes. I am. Um, yeah. The other thing I was going to say I used recently is the the Zoom. What's it called? An H four, isn't it? Yeah. I recorded the choir with that the other day, and because it has a camera stand um, thread on the bottom of it, the director of the choir brought in, he's an amateur photographer, so he brought in this really tall um, photographic stand, and I kind of put it right up on the top of that, you know, higher than I could reach, maybe about 10 foot in the air, and pointed it down at the choir, and then switched it on, and then spent the rest of the evening worrying about it, but I came out with some really (laughs) good recordings, actually, so... Um, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. SonicState.com. So, real knob stuck on an L- LCD. I know, Dave, you were quite excited about this. This is the Girton Labs Sense Surface, which basically, as far as I can tell, is any old LCD, and you stick a knob on it, which has got some kind of motion sensor in it, and it um, it translates in itself into movement of a software nature. Basically, so if you stick a knob on the sur- on the surface and turn one or several, it, it mimics what's going on in software. Is that about right? Yeah, except I don't think it's a bog standard screen, is it? Is it not? I don't think so. Oh, I think it is. I think it ah. is. Yeah, I think it is actually. Um, I'll just re- basically, it's by Girton Labs, who are based in Cambridge, uh, run by a chap called Lindsay Williams, who used to work for Microsoft Research. Uh, it's called a Sense Surface. This is what they say about it: uh, applications that would normally use a mouse or a QWERTY keyboard can now be controlled with traditional knobs. The scroll bar on the right-hand side of your computer screen can be controlled with a real slider. The Sense Surface can be used with most laptops with a USB input. The sensing knobs have custom-designed movement sensor to determine the position within a range of 180 degrees with a 10-bit digital output linearity is typically one percent so i guess they're quite accurate magnetic knobs can be moved and repositioned immediately by picking them up moving to a different part of the screen Uh, unique sensing xy matrix is attached to the rear of the laptop screen to detect the controls position the distance of the sensor can also be detected the rotary controls are low friction there's no screen fingerprints as as with normal touch surfaces the linear sliders and switches can also be used on the lcd surface for audio use logarithmic response can be programmed the system is multi-touch and scalable the number of controls on the screen is limited by the size of the screen and the screen can be at any angle and the sense surface should cost less than a hundred dollars in production jesus imagine so basically you get your laptop you've got your i don't know your your g your geforce um Mtron on there or some synthesizer and you put a load of knobs on there that correspond with that and then you've got real controls that's kind of the size of it isn't it mm-hmm. what do you think I- I like this. I like I'll it a lot. One. Yeah. It's like 
old tech meets high tech. I wonder, though, how, you know, if you had something quite complicated and you wanted to close your laptop in a hurry and run off, or you had, you know, and you really didn't want to, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Wouldn't you kind of, you'd have to set it all up. I mean, but it's a great, it's a sort of real left field kind of idea of how to control software with hardware. And it's modular. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of those kind of electronics kits you used to get for kids in the sort of 80s that were sort of blocks of, they were um, blocks of plastic with kind of magnets on them and different connectors. And some of them were knobs. And so you could create a little circuit in a really sort of large kind of Lego style format. They remind me of sort of that vibe. I don't know why. They were always crystal radios, weren't they? Generally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, I like this. I, we've got a, um, a bit of a tradition of wind-ups on tour, things like, you know, sellotaping up someone's mark tree, things like that. So if, if this is magnetic, you can actually, if you could demagnetise the screen as a surprise and all the knobs would fall off, that, to me, would be the <laughs> ultimate tour wind-up. Yeah, after spending a really long time setting it up, it's an exciting development. I mean, it sort of crosses the border a little bit of of what we might expect I, I i don't know i don't know whether or not it's it's a doable thing but it looked like a really good idea and this guy's obviously fairly smart he's been kind of doing stuff since the 70s he's kind of a big brain kind of guy but a hundred bucks yes please mm. he's just down the road from me then isn't he if he's in cambridge exactly if someone want to go and see him and see, see if we can get see him, yeah, yeah go and interview him let's, let's see what he's got to say i would have rung him up but i didn't get time rich would you like to stick these things all over your uh, 32 inch um lcd or would you rather not nope <laughs> nope nope <laughs> it's interesting though and i think i think it's probably a harbinger of certain other kinds of control like once you can execute this and i guess it's dependent notice that they don't show you the thing on the back of the lcd anywhere yeah. Like, nowhere do you see what that thing looks like. And I'm just curious to know why and what it is. But but once you can do this, and it's cool, you can do it. And and I see down here where it says that you can now also use it to set mechanical fingers on clocks and rotary dials. Like, you can use it in, in applications that are not computer-specific. And so I think as a controller, it's, it's a very interesting device. But whether or not I really want to stick this thing on my screen, um, no. No, fair <laughs> enough. I wonder my, how powerful the magnet. I mean, because those like those uh, Apple screens are quite thick, aren't they? For an LCD, yeah. you know, I mean, you'd yeah, have to get a pretty massive magnet on the back to hold those things on, wouldn't you? Oh well, do they even contend that it'll work on anything other than a laptop? I, I didn't. Oh, well, I guess they're saying it'll work on a clock, so <laughs> I guess it will. It says current clients include interactive book publishers and aircraft displays. Now, hmm. whether it has applications in that sort of world, I don't know. Maybe I, I guess on. I, I, Aircraft display. Yeah, can you imagine scary. the magnet drops? All the controls of your aircraft just drop to the floor and in a big pile, and you have to kind of reach down and pick them and stick them back on again while you're trying to land, say, you know, I don't know. Take a wild guess. I've just followed a link from his uh, page. He says, What previous work have you done in digital audio and music synthesizer design? Then it says, Answer, please see here. So I clicked on that. And there's um, there's an Allen and Heath Brunel sound sampler from 1983, which looks utterly amazing. It's got no knobs on it, uh, kind of weird red and orange, like touch controls on it. But mm. more, uh, more the wow is that uh, I had a ZX Spectrum, and I'm sure that I had one of my sound samplers was this digital sound thing that's pictured here as well, which he says that he um, designed. It's so not an outstanding like to... pedigree, though, is it? Frankly, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, it may have been good, but it, it doesn't it doesn't kind of give you this uh, <laughs> this long lineage of uh, fabulous innovation. But maybe this this will be the one. I don't know. So we'll keep an eye on that, shall we? One for the uh, one for the back burner, perhaps. I mean, Dave, you live not too uh -huh. far away, so maybe and Mark, you don't. So maybe you should go up and see him and see what he's up to, because it'd be great to see. Uh, well, we can always try, can't we? Yeah, yeah. Right, I wanted to do this because I know we've been doing a little bit about iPhones and um, a, a chap called Andy Abernathy uh, has been emailing me saying, oh, I just found another app, I just found this, I just found that. And also got an email from Nick Dicker from uh, Isotope just before they released the iDrum for iPhone. And I was being, you know, I've been kind of umming and ahhing about how I could get this kind of stuff because I was thinking it's kind of interesting, I want to do some reviews of it. So I bought myself an iPod Touch the other day. How do you like it? Because I've been thinking of getting one. I'm completely in love. 
In fact, I'm yeah. so, I, I just can't believe how brilliant it is, to be honest. I mean, it really is terrifyingly brilliant. Um, and I downloaded a few bits and bobs on it. And um, yeah, I have to say, it's kind of the future. It makes me think, I wish I didn't have so much time on my contract to run for my phone because I could really get into this thing. And I know I'm starting to sound like an Apple fanboy, but it really is quite amazing. The thing I think a lot of people don't realise is the iPod Touch will run most of these applications as well. And I have, in fact, installed iDrum and Beatmaker and a number of other things on this. Uh, and it's a piece of cake. Dave, I know that you you know the Isotope guys. iDrum, uh, it's pretty cool. Let me just, I could just play play a bit of that. Bit of iDrum. Here we go. Haven't had any sound clips yet this week, so here we go. You hearing that? Mm-hmm. I haven't had a chance to play with it too much, but it's got, I, I think I downloaded the hip-hop R&B version. Uh, these are all preset patterns. I haven't been able to kind of mess with it too much. But one of the things I will say is, you can seem to swing on it, and I haven't figured out that that out because it's it's all done in um, sort of blocks of four. But it's a very neat idea. And Dave, you're a isotope kind of. You do you not know the guy who programmed this? Yes, it's Art, the same guy who does stuff for us. And it's a really nice little interface. Actually, I'm very impressed. I'm actually just waiting for my uh, pack, um, which is you know the ability to transfer my phone number to an iPhone, and I'm going to buy it purely because of this, and for one feature. Because I really like the fact that you can shake it and the pattern disappears. That is so cool. It's really clever. They use the kind of uh, the geo positioning, whatever it is. It's the sort of accelerometer. So you get a pat, you get a a pattern going. You don't like it, you can clear it. You just give it a shake, and it just goes. It's really some it's beautiful. <laughs> it's a really beautiful piece of interface design, and there's more. You know, there's the um, eye synth and all sorts of other things as well that seem to be coming on this, and. It wasn't really so much that I could wax about the iPhone and iTouch, although I have to say they are brilliant. Um, It was more to do with the fact that have Apple totally nailed this software sales thing? I mean, because people who would be normally producing this stuff would normally just, you know, they'd sell a few copies and then it would just be ripped off and you'd you'd get cracks. Whereas this way, it's so easy to buy it it's kind of much less hassle just to kind of pay a fiver or, or a tenner or whatever and download it and get it installed. And you can get it now. You don't have to go looking or go through any procedure. I mean, haven't they just saved the small software developers kind of from, from you know, bankruptcy? Or am I being a bit overdramatic? I don't think you've been that dramatic. Either that or they've tied a ball and chain to them. Well, yeah, it's copy protection, sure. But the point is, um, basically, you've got... Uh, they get they split it seventy thirty. It's all kind of go everything goes through the uh, iPhone App Store, which is you know pretty seamless. I have to say, I mean, I've used it, and you can download things directly onto the onto the iPhone or the iTouch. You, you don't iPod Touch. You don't actually have to be connected to a computer, and it just syncs up later. And it's all kind of because it's tied very strictly to these kind of criteria. You're not going to get a duffer. And if somebody managed to slip something through, apparently the um, the iPhone the iTunes or whatever can go and check a sort of rogue app URL. So if any of them turn out to have something in there that they didn't catch, it'll just get deactivated like that because they've got this sort of thing built in. So isn't that good? Mm. I heard that there was an entrepreneur in America who just came up with an idea for a word game and has been selling it on, on the app store. You know, I don't know. It doesn't cost very much, but she's been making like two grand a week because she has a hot app. So is it not, perhaps the time to kind of think mm, maybe we should be doing some of this stuff i don't know dave you are a software developer you must be looking at this and thinking hmm i i oddity i mtron i you know all of that stuff shush <laughs> <laughs> Every, but everybody must be i mean i'm surprised how much dsp you can get in the you know because when i'm using the iDrum, you can trigger real time you know and it is you know, there's not a, it's not a sort of horrible amount of latency. Because it hasn't got some huge bloated operating system. It's all based on a version of Linux, isn't it? I'm not sure what's going on under the hood. <clears throat> it's a lot simpler than a computer, though, isn't it? So technically, it should be more capable than a computer of doing a lot of things. But, I mean, I think this could be, you know, we could start to see a resurgence. Because, I mean, no, we've been talking over the years that we've been doing the podcast of this sort of drain away from kind of creative programming because there's just no kind of, there's no money in it because you know people are just too easy it's too difficult to protect it but surely this this is could be like the kind of the holy grail in a way it could bring people back into the sort of the mindset of hey i'm going to program a hit app a, a series of apps for the iphone i could make some money out of this i could see that 
I guess I'm enthusing because I've just got an iPod. Um, but I don't know, Rich. You, you have you have you got you haven't got one of these, so you're probably not getting quite where I'm coming from. You should try it though. Well, no, my son's got a uh, an iPod Touch, and I've seen it and played around with it. They were all telling me your fingers are too big; it's not going to work on it because <laughs> I do. I have I have pretty meaty hands, and uh, no, it works fine for me. And uh, I'm just looking forward to accumulating the necessary funds uh which one did you get nick i just got the eight i just got the eight gig one i mean i i I could have got but you pay you know it would have been great to have a 32 but it's just a lot and also the thing is is if you depending on how you use it if you sync it a lot and you're not away a whole bunch then i can just go just give me the latest three things that i've not listened to yet in terms of podcasts um one that's really nice for photos as well and um you can get iChat on it you can get you know and there's just it, it's wireless man you know and it seems to be you can get hook up with it so I, eight gigs was enough for me you see i want to upgrade from my 20 gig ipod so that that means i need the 32 because i want to start from where i am now in my 20 gig ipod and move forward from there so sure and that's expensive i know well it's like five six hundred bucks isn't it yeah, I've been I've been scouring Craigslist on occasion, which is uh, you know I don't know if that's available over there, but it's a site here where people sell used gear of various kinds, mm. and uh, been looking looking for a cheap price. At some point, I'll get one for sure. Is the uh, you're saying it's uh, the iPod Touch is wireless, right? Yep. Yeah. So it connects to your Wi-Fi connection. Yeah, or mm-hmm. a, a Wi-Fi connection. Yep. So if you've got, I mean, I've got a terror station with my music on it, and I connect to it via iTunes and then play it out of the airport. Um, mm-hmm. air, air tunes, yes. Mm-hmm. So can this thing connect to shared libraries? So if you had most of the music that you listen to at home on it. I don't know, Rich. You said, I, I think it's possible to do that. It's the, I mean, I don't know. The thing about the 8 gig, just to quickly go back to you, Rich, is the 8 gig one is so super slim. I don't know whether the 32s are bigger and fatter, but this is hmm. just kind of like, um, it's kind of like a biscuit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. It's like three um, credit cards thick, you know? Regarding what Mark was talking about, I don't know to what extent it can be made to control um, iTunes. But I do know that my son demonstrated to me that you can control at least uh, transport functions and song selection from the iPod Touch. In other words, you can use it as a remote control for your laptop or your computer. Yeah. Which brings us on to our next topic very neatly. This thing where it controls Pro Tools? But that's like 150 bucks. Right. And And you can use it. I'm not sure what application there is for it, but I guess you could sit at the back of the control room and sort of wrestle control from your programmer i don't know kind of quite well that is yeah but that's uh i i bought something called selling clicker one of the main reasons i bought it was because it could control pro tools and logic and i've used it once right i, I thought wow this is amusing i can start and stop logic and you know jump around the screen and do a few things and really beyond that if you're in the room with the computer why I don't yeah why don't you just point, really I suppose you could. It would be useful over Wi-Fi if you were in a vocal booth and you were recording yourself, and you didn't want to have to kind of get a, a, a more complex remote system. I guess that's maybe what they're thinking. This works the best as. Well, so. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't oh. thought of that. So you I've know. had a few. I've had a few drummers, uh, really great drummers, who uh, at one time about a year or two ago were looking for a solution to how they could record themselves from behind the drums to their Pro Tools rigs. And having a remote transport. And at the time, the product of choice was this Frontier Designs Tascam distributed thing. I don't Al- Alpha Track, wasn't it? Alpha yeah, Track, I mean, or. Is um, that the one? I don't, I don't remember yeah. the name of the product, but it was uh, basically a wireless, it may even have been wired, uh, remote for your Pro Tools rig. And they could sit there and put it like to the left of their hi hat and just hit record and go. Yeah. And so this would actually, for 150 bucks, replace that in terms of that particular functionality. I guess that's yeah. But you can also kind of zoom around the screen and kind of change levels and put things into record. It's kind of a bit. I suppose it's the same thing, but yeah, it's probably a little less responsive, I'd imagine. I mean, can I, I can't. Can imagine. I get my compressor open on it and you know? By just, the look I don't know. Attack time. By the look of the video, the YouTube video that you sent us a link to, it looks very, very responsive because he's doing the transport and he's scrubbing. And the numbers on the screen on the phone and on the the screen on the computer are the same. So it's scrubbing to within point zero 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 of a bar cool. beat second, whatever 
mode he's got it in. Well, that's cool. It's pretty I, bloody tight. I'll tell you the one the one thing that's kind of curious about this whole thing. So if you were, you know, say for instance, I'm a website who reviews stuff, right? Which I am, and I want to start reviewing all these these iPhone apps. How do you get NFRs? Because it all has to go through the iTunes app store, does it not? I guess you don't. I think they can do it via, uh, you know, iTunes gift certificates. Ah, okay, that's a good idea. It seems they might get a certain allowance of those. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you can you stick one of those funny knobs on it? Well, it's, that's exactly what, what I was talking about earlier. Yeah, on <laughs> a little just, iPod Touch. An iPod Touch with a knob on it. That knob that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, mind you, you stick a big magnet on the back of your iPod Touch, and I think maybe your RAM's gone. Your memory might not. Your your storage might be a little bit um, wonky after that. Dear tech support. So, yeah, iPod iPod App Store Touch Frenzy. I'm going to try and get some reviews of this stuff in because I think it's it's really kind of fascinating and groundbreaking. It's a refreshing approach to interfacing, and it's kind of making people think in a very unusual way. And I'm sure some of this stuff will rub into the kind of the desktop and laptop world as well, because people are having to design new and interesting interfaces that could be used, you know, in a similar fashion. It's funny because when we looked at BeatMaker, wasn't it, that that didn't have the uh, ability to export anything as MIDI files and stuff. But actually, I think there's an update coming to iDrum for the desktop so that you can kind of, you know, you can start editing on your iDrum on the train, get it to the studio, import it onto iDrum on your desktop and finishing finish editing there. So I think that side of things is going to get really exciting. Yeah, I mean, what you really want to be able to do, I mean, and this is probably asking too much, is sync it with an mp3 so if you've got just like a vocal or something and you want to start getting some beats and a tempo thing together that would be the way you know because i mean sitting there and programming beats on it on its own without any sort of other musical accompaniment is is a bit sort of disconnected from uh, from what you would normally use this kind of thing for so if you could get that going on can i have iLogic, please <laughs> oh I would you like want it maybe a four or possibly an eight track version of logic that works on an iphone with maybe one instrument track and some drum loops and and the ability to record from the microphone. Uh, yeah, sure, Mark. I'll get I'll get straight on it. <laughs> then when I get to the studio, I can just you know sync the two things up via Wi-Fi and then continue working on it. Yeah, that might be possible. Maybe a few iterations down the line when the hardware's there. But yeah, without I'm I'm personally pretty excited about this, and I guess as a software developer, you know, you must see the potential there too, Dave, for people to actually start making money out of software again. I think it's very interesting. The whole thing's really interesting. And good luck to them. I think, you know, they're actually performing a service. I know we're very keen on um, generally as a society of sort of bashing the uh, the person who has the monopoly, but they do seem to be doing some good stuff with it, really, at the moment. So good on them. Well, we're nearly done. I just quick, I suppose, really, what we need to do is close on um, the sad news. I'm just going to play this of... Mr. Isaac Hayes, who passed away on the 10th of August in his Memphis home. And, uh, you know, I feel like oh, I'm, I'm playing the intro to Shaft. I feel like I'm rapping Young MC over it or any countless other samples that have been made of this. But uh, it was a very sad day indeed. So um, Mr. Isaac Hayes will be missed. Anyone who has a gold-plated Cadillac is all right in my book. Yeah. <laughs> Rich, I suspect you've met him being a... Being in, being a man about town. No, I wish I had. Really? Uh, wow. Well, anyway, a loss. It is a loss. Uh, he's a big, big character, and obviously, you know, got into doing all sorts of things subsequently. But yeah, that's a cracking. It's one of the best intros of all times, I think, from from my point of view, from a sort of pop orchestral point of view. So anyway, on that um, sad note, but um, we'll play out on the music, which will be on a good high note. I'd like to say thank you very much to all my guests. Um, Mr. Dave Spears from G4Software.com. Thank you very much for joining me this week. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Mark Tinley, MySpace.com forward slash Mark Tinley. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm, I, I think I'm still here. I've you, survived you, it, haven't I? You are. You're, you're still here. You're, you're not, but you might, you, might, um, you might need to go and... I don't know, what can you eat? I can eat any fruit that I want. Go and have a banana. That'll fill you up. Raw vegetables or steamed vegetables. Yeah, I did go and buy some bananas earlier on, and I sort of I desperately need some sugar frenzy. But I've been told, in no uncertain terms, that I'm not allowed to split the banana in half and cover it in honey, which is what I wanted to do. Well, bananas are good and sweet anyway. You should be able to survive. 
yeah. I'm surprised. I'll let you know next week how I'm getting on. Yeah. Whether I've made it a week or how long I managed to do it for and how much weight I lose and how healthy I become. I want a full progress report. Thanks very much, Mark. And Rich Hilton, off to work in the studio today? Uh, yeah. Yeah, off to the studio today, and Friday I get on a plane for Manchester. Ah, uh, yes, well, you're playing. For those, uh, well, I'm still waiting for the challenge. I want to see someone, I want to hear back from Rich Hilton, who does a sheet gig somewhere, of somebody holding up. We're going to publicise this when he's, you're playing at Creamfields on, what, Saturday or Sunday? What night are you playing? Sunday. On, on Sunday, Sunday night, which is the 20, what date? The 24th. 24th of August. I want Rich to be able to spot somebody holding up a Sonic Talk placard in the audience. It's a challenge. <laughs> I wonder if anyone will be there. <laughs> but I do wish I'd you the best of gigs, Rich, and I'm sure it'll be you. wonderful because everybody loves Chic and uh, they play brilliantly. Well, thank you, Nick, and uh, had a great time today as always. Rich Hilton, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. Thanks very much, guys. Hey.